All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Millennial Sales Podcast. It's your host, Tom Alemo. They call me Tommy Tahoe. Welcome to the last uh, last two weeks of December here, last two weeks of the year. Excited for this episode. And um, you know, want to share a thought with you first, and then we'll get to this week's guest, and we'll get to the content. Um, one quick thought for you. As you're closing out your final deals of the year, hopefully everyone can land those last few get them pushed through procurement, hopefully before the holiday this week, and you can relax a little bit and recharge uh, this weekend and, and next week. But as you're doing that, and as you're planning things out for 2021, making your list of goals and, and thoughts and plans and, and maybe resolutions, I advise you to, to maybe, just maybe pause on the resolution and try one word instead. It's something that I've been doing the last three years, inspired by John Gordon, who's uh, an author of probably a few dozen books, best-selling author, speaker, motivator, works with a lot of professional sports teams. And he and his family, they all choose one word individually. And that could be motivation. It could be trust. It could be love. It could be lead. It could be serve. It could be growth. Whatever the word is, that's their word of the year. And um, the way I think about it is instead of just choosing a resolution, or instead of only doing goals, I still set goals in all of my different buckets for the year. But instead of doing that, or in addition to doing that, think about who do I need to become? What do I need to become in order to achieve those goals, right? So in order to achieve these goals, maybe I need to really grow. Maybe I really need to serve people. Maybe I really need to be disciplined, accountable, um, play offense. Those are some words that I've heard from uh, friends uh, that are are taking this challenge as well that they've they've hit me up after I wrote about it last week. So, uh, what's the word that needs to get you there? And and then John Gordon and his family they actually paint a picture each of them for their word and they hang it up, uh, and it reminds them to focus on their word for the year. And so, um, you know, I definitely recommend anyone that's listening to if you want to switch things up for the year, write down your word focus on it, have it visible, and, uh, and try to embody that as we go into 2021 and all of the uh, great opportunities and the challenges that we come across. So with that said, let's get into this week's episode. Um, I've got my man, Mike Hook here, who has got to be one of the uh, most likable people that I've ever met. And uh, you know, one of the main things that we talk about is the sales demo this week. So let's just say the traditional sales demo model, it sucks. Right. It's it's uh, here's the normal flow. The salesperson kicks it off. Maybe they do an upfront contract asking, hey, do we have 30 minutes or 60 minutes? And then they start with a slide with all the logos on it of all their customers and their investors and how great the company is. And everyone's got one of those. And then they just go straight into whatever product they, they want to show. Right. And they pitch and they pitch and they feature dump. Then they ask, hey, any questions? No one answers. And they make sure that they use the word integration and API and synergy and all these BS terms. And then at the end, you know, with one minute left in the call, they try to land next steps. The prospect said, this is good. I'll run it by my boss. And the sales rep gets off the call and says, I crushed that demo. They said it was good. Let's roll this up in the forecast for this month. Um, and then three months later, you never hear back and you put them as closed loss in Salesforce. So um, that probably sounds familiar, whether you want to admit it or not, we've all been there. So the reason, one of the reasons I had Mike Hook on here is because I know that he's the master of the sales demo. He's also just got a great attitude 
Uh, he's upbeat. He's positive. He brings the energy, which I love. And uh, but we talk about, you know, my favorite part of this episode is where he talks about personalizing the demo for his buyers and teaching his team to do that. So I think he's got some great tips toward the middle end of this episode, really focusing on the on the demo. A few other things that we talked about uh, starting our both of us starting our careers at Cutco selling knives. That was fun. Uh, Mike talks about, you know, his come up uh, in sales and, you know, being the hardest worker in the room and setting goals and actually starting in customer service. Uh, before moving into sales and how his work ethic kind of got him there and, and made him very successful. Uh, and then even navigating internal politics to help rise through the ranks. Mike uh, was just promoted to VP of sales at Childcare CRM. And, you know, he's only been, you know, in the sales industry for, I'd like to say under a decade, and he's already got the VP of sales title. So he's worked really hard. He's navigated the politics. He's performed at a very high level to get up through the ranks and provide value and, and, you know, earn what he's gotten. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. So please go follow Mike Hook on LinkedIn. Uh, he's got some great content on there. Uh, he's got a newsletter that you can find on there and hit him up. And, and he's a, you know, a great person to know, a great person to connect with. So I definitely recommend adding him, try to connect with him um, and learn from him. Second, the only ask I have here, uh, is if you enjoyed this episode, I would love if you would check us out. Uh, subscribe wherever you're listening. If it's Apple or Spotify or YouTube, you can leave a review on Apple. Five-star reviews is really the thing that helps this show grow. So please leave a review. Uh, you can subscribe again on YouTube as well to check us out and, and watch me right now. Watch me and Mike have our conversation and um, you know, share this episode with a friend. I've been doing this for about three and a half years. We're almost at 200 episodes. Um, there's no ads for you guys. So uh, I, the, really the thing that you can do is, is share this out, subscribe, leave a review, and hopefully we can continue to grow this thing and I'll, I'll get great guests for you. So uh, you can also connect with me on LinkedIn, Tom Alamo. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Tommy Tahoe. I love to chat. I put some stuff from behind the scenes up here as well. So you can hit me up. But without further ado, let's get into my conversation this week with Mike Hook. Let's go. Mike Hook, good morning, my man. Welcome to Millennial Sales. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. Good morning. How you doing? Yeah, man. I'm doing great. How about yourself? Oh, doing good. No complaints. Yeah, man. Well, how's uh before we get into everything, how's it been? Uh, obviously, COVID's a crazy time. You moved, I know, to Dallas, like you know, what a couple weeks before everything went down. So, how's that going? Have you have you met people? Have you been able to get out of the house? Uh, how's that been? Oh, it's been so weird. Like I'm such a social person, and one of the things that I was really excited to do when I moved to Dallas was get involved with the city. Like go to the events that are going on. Dallas is a massive place. You've got all the sports teams here. You've got their fair. You've got these events. So I was super fired up to check out this new place after having been in San Diego for seven and a half years. You know, beautiful city, but I was antsy. I was antsy to go get something new and check it out. And so, yeah, I moved to Dallas at the end of January last week uh, to take this role at Childcare CRM and start here. And, you know, the first time you're getting settled, you're getting everything in. So I kind of figured out my area a little bit. And then on my birthday, so my birthday is March 2nd. And 
I had a buddy fly in my brothers down here. I had a couple friends who have moved here from San Diego as well. And we all went to see an FC Dallas game mm. and it was awesome. So went to their soccer team. They won. It was my birthday. And then like a week later, everything shut down. So it's like, I was just starting to get out and experience all those things that I was really excited for. Uh, and then, yeah, it stopped. So it was really weird. And like I said, I had a couple friends here before, but it's really hard to meet people. Um, so yeah. Early on, you know, people quarantined, shut down, uh, not really meeting anybody there. And then as things have opened up a little bit, um, started meeting a couple more people, you know, Revenue Collective has been great for that. Um, something that I'm a part of, like they've got the Dallas chapter here. So I've at least been able to interact and meet some new people that like aren't just from my past life in San Diego who have moved here. So slowly as, as the years kind of turn the corner um, through summer into like the fall and winter here, um, I've had a chance to meet a couple more people, but it's, it's going to be interesting to see what happens now too with, with things kind of shutting back down maybe or staying open and cases increasing. So it's, it has definitely been an interesting start uh, to move into a new city to say the least. Yeah, just wild, man. Yeah, Revenue Collective has been great. I've found that you know, it's been obviously tough to meet people and connect with people in person, but this year more than, you know, any year that I've had since graduating college, you know, five and a half years ago, I've met more people virtually that I've really enjoyed you being one of them, right? Like I didn't know you in 2019. Um, and so revenue collective and LinkedIn and all these other places has been really helpful to, I think people have been kind of almost forced into connecting in a new way, um, virtually then, you know, because you can't go to the bar, you can't go to a meetup or whatever you might do to meet people. Um, and it has allowed you to even meet people that, you know, aren't in your city. So there's kind of been that plus minus, uh, for me at least. Yeah, totally. I mean, you, you hit it on the head, right? Like beforehand, what would I do? I'd go out to the bar. There'd be, you know, a college football yeah. game on Saturday. <laughs> I'd wear my Ohio State or my University of Arizona gear, depending on what game was on. And I would go out and I'd meet half the bar. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe have one drink too many. Definitely laugh. Uh, a <laughs> lot of high fives. And then, you know, you kind of meet friends, right? So you already have this like thing to bond over in some regard. And uh, yeah, that's, it's been weird without, without having that. Uh, anymore. So I do think, you know, you see these online communities, right? Anyone that's come up, like you see Rev Genius coming up, you see Revenue Collective, you've got, you know, bigger presence on LinkedIn. And uh, I think they definitely are a, a outcome from people just dying to have some type of connection. And the fact that people have a lot more free time now that they're not going out, you know, that's like, that's a whole day, right? Like you go out, like what I would do, go out early in the morning for a college football game, go out, meet with friends after that. Like that is a full Saturday. Like same mm -hmm. thing. You got Thursday night football. Are you going out? Well, that's a full night or whatever other events going on too. Uh, yeah. You know, fairs, whatever it may be. Like that's a lot of time. So yeah. I think people's time has freed up too. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And, and that's why, yeah, to your point, why a lot of those communities are opening up and, you know, I think there's, there's no shortage of them and they add a lot of value because you're able to spend more time, you know, connecting with people in a different way. So I think that's great. Um, I want to kick, I want to start, uh, you know, talking about some sales stuff and I would be totally, you know, it would be a strikeout for me if I didn't first bring up Cutco because, uh, 
That's like me seeing a fisherman at sea because that Cutco, as weird as it is to say, changed my life when I was 19 years old. Um, you know, I was you know playing tennis in college, usually taught camps and whatnot, and I hurt my shoulder. So I just randomly like found this flyer and I'm like, oh, I can't teach tennis. How about I go? It's like, make money and work your own hours. I'm like, I'm in, let's do this thing. And so um, it was just a great summer for me and opened up my eyes to sales. So I'm curious, it looks like you might maybe did that like your freshman year or sophomore year at Arizona. I'd love to hear about that experience. Yeah. So I did it right after I graduated from high school. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. So it was that summer afterwards, I was 18 and the whole thing was just like, all right, I'm going to college. Like I've got this summer here. My parents were like, you're not just going to goof off for the next three months. Like, sorry, you got to go get a job. And I was like, okay, well, I don't even know how I found Cutco. Like somebody else at my school might've done it. And it was like a decent job or like demoed my mom on it and like cut the penny <laughs> and did that whole thing. Right. Um, but I end up doing Cutco and it's totally my first foray into sales too. So I'm like going through my school and meeting those people, but my school was small. So I ran out of people really quickly. So the next thing you know, it's like, I've got the yellow pages open. And I'm just cold calling oh, yeah. people and, you know, doing all that. And it's, I think it's such a good job for someone really young to figure out what sales really entails. You know, that's tough, right? Like this is door to door. Like you are in the yellow pages, you are calling a stranger, you are selling them knives, which when you're 18, you don't realize that knives are crazy expensive. And so like, I'm convincing people to spend $2,000 that I've never met or spoken to before while I'm cooking them lunch or dinner in their house. Cause that's how I used to sell these knives. I'd go during mealtime so I could have them cook with them. Yeah. But it was good. Like it was a total grind and I think it gave me a real appreciation for sales, but also I found out that I was pretty good at it. And I started making a lot of money when I was 18. And so after that, I was kind of like, well, this is great. I've got the money to go do whatever I want now. And, you know, this could be a lifestyle for me. Like, I'm actually pretty good at this. So it was yeah. a really cool way for me to sort of break into sales, uh, have that sort of the Cutco brother and sisterhood, if you will, because <laughs> a lot of the people that I know who are successful sellers, whether they're individual contributors, whether they're sales leaders, they've done something like Cutco in the past. Maybe not Cutco, but they've done some type of door-to-door -door in the past. And it's, uh, it, it is a springboard of sorts. And what, yeah, I mean, to your point about the money, what people don't understand is like, there's people racking up money. And I don't know if it was like this when you were, you were there, but once you hit a certain amount of sales, you, you make 50% commission on deals. So I remember going to this like conference retreat thing. And there's this guy running a session that was in college and he was making like $50,000 for the summer. I'm like, what is like, that's what people make a year. And he's in college, like slinging knives and just like so good at it. But it's a, it's a crazy way to probably open up your mind at such a young age too. of like, oh, not only are you good at it, not only could this be something you want to do, but like, this could be lucrative. Like this could be a career that, you know, I don't have to be a doctor or something if I want to make money and have a good career. Totally. Yeah. The, uh, so you were there, the summer sales competition conference, yeah, yeah, I think is yeah. what it was. So I went to one of those two. Um, and it was the same thing. Yeah. I made a boatload of cash. They offered me like, Hey, do you want to go open your own office for Cutco? Yeah, and that's yeah. when I quit. Yeah, me too. So they offered me an office. I quit because it was just like, I won't go to college if they offer me this because there's just <laughs> too much money to be made right here. And 
it was like, I think I can go sell something else and make more. Yeah. Were you, I think I, you know, I was listening to something and it sounds like you have other family members that are in different parts of sales. Um, did you know that that was probably going to be a good option for you before the Cutco thing, just based on, I mean, you're an extroverted guy. You're kind of like, when I think about a, a sales guy, like you're one of your kind of like your personality traits match that just be how outgoing you are and, and things like that. Was that kind of like, yeah, this is probably something I want to do. Or did you need that experience with Cutco? Do you think to open your eyes up? Yeah. So my dad owns a car dealership and he was a car salesman um, yeah. and still is. And my grandfather, my dad's dad, same thing. So I'd kind of had this entrepreneurial and also sales pedigree in my background. And I had seen that uh, and what that entails. I think for me, what Cutco did is it solidified that I would be able to do it successfully at some point. Uh, so sales for me, it was it's all about the freedom to be able to do what you want, right? So like, I love going to music and seeing live concerts. I love going to travel and I love being able to do that on a whim. Like sometimes, sure, you plan it out when you do the big trips, but sometimes you just want to buy a plane ticket somewhere and just get on a plane and go. Um, and so for me, sales was being able to say, hey, I can make my own schedule. I can make my own money and I can see what type of life that that could afford for you, both yeah. financially and just from a peace of mind standpoint. So I knew that those were things that I wanted and I knew that sales would be a gateway to get those things that I want. Uh, but I didn't know I was any good at it. So I think Cutco helped me say like, it helped give me those early wins, right? That confidence at a really young age to say, great, let's go get your degree. And then when you're done with that, let's go find a way to go sell something. Yeah. And, and when, so when you graduated, I know that you went over to, uh, I think they were called Paylease at the time. And, and I think they've rebranded, but you went there, um, uh, said goodbye to the family in Ohio and went out to San Diego, um, which, you know, is probably a tough tough for the parents to accept you going across the country, <laughs> but what was your mindset kind of going into that first job, knowing that you had some of that confidence that you've done it before in a different realm? Did you feel good about it or were you nervous going into the first sales job? Uh, always nervous, yeah. always nervous. Like I, to this day, get nervous before a big sales meeting. Yeah. Like I, it still happens all the time. So, you know, the first job too, when I started at Paylease, it was actually in customer service. So they didn't even have a sales job right away. Uh, it was all about getting a foot in the door. So like during my interview process, I let them know that I was interested in sales and that's where I wanted to be. And within the next year, I saw myself in a sales role, but also I just wanted to start working. Like I wanted to start getting out there, doing it on my own, making a name for myself. So I think it was partially the, this, it wasn't like fear per se, but it was almost like this anxiety type of thing where it's like, I just need to start doing, start doing and just get in this role. So uh, in customer service, we had these competitions to see who could sell one day payments at a faster period or have people get set up on recurring payments. And I just won all of them. Like as a customer service rep, I won everyone every week. And so within two months, I started out as the company's first SDR. So we called them sales associates at the time. But I had just like an open database and they were just like, here's a mess of names and companies. You got to go figure out if they're any good or not, if they even fit our profile and then go call them and set up meetings, right? So I did that, did that for a couple of months, but definitely nervous. My whole mindset around it was I'm going to learn everything I need to learn to go be successful at this. And I will work as hard as it takes and work as long as it takes until I'm successful. 
Like there was no, oh, I might not be good at this. It was how hard will I have to work to get good at this? Was that advised by your parents or your dad that owns a business? Or do you think that was instinctual or, or where did that come from? So, you know, you always hear the advice, right? Like be the first person in, be the last person out. You know, I think you hear that advice and it's, it's definitely been given to me. And I think being a hard worker was always advice that I was given. You know, if you work hard, good things will happen. Uh, but I saw that manifest early on in sports. So I played football, I played lacrosse, uh, growing up all through high school and even in through to college. So it was always, you know, you work hard, good things happen. I was talking to someone the other day too. Listen, I think external things have, have shaped me in that regard. And that advice was always given, but everybody's told to work hard. Not yeah. everybody does it. Uh, I, I'm pretty insanely competitive. I'm competitive with myself, but I'm also competitive with other people. Like I want to win. I just, I do. And I still, even today have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because and not in like a bad way, not like I don't belong here, but more in a way of it's like, I can do more. Like I want to do better. And I kind of, no matter what, uh, I just always have that sort of like, there's more to do. There's more to do. There's more to do. And, and that's, that's part of my personality. Um, uh, but also, I think, you know, I've seen positive examples from it in my entire life. Yeah. And how, do, how does that manifest itself for you, whether it's nowadays where you're, you know, you're running the whole sales team or even back then when you are an SDR or you're an individual contributor and you say that, that you, know, you know, the competition's driving you. Is it like certain goals you're setting for yourself? Is there a leaderboard on Salesforce or something that you're refreshing at the end of the day as, as kind of your driver? Like what? what was like a tactical thing that you kind of like kept you going and kept you pushing? Yeah. So there's a couple of things that, that did it first was the leaderboard. Like when you're first starting out, it's, you know, I was 22 years old. It's the leaderboard right there. Like I want to be on top of the leaderboard. Like that was milestone. Number one for me was to be the best seller. Mm -hmm. Milestone number two for me started to become financial stuff. So first it was, I want to be the best seller. How do I do that? It was, okay, here's what I need to learn from a product standpoint. Here's what I need to learn from a sales standpoint. And then I did my own math backwards, right? Like here's our quota. Here's what the best guy's doing. I want to beat him. Here's how many, you know, calls I have, deals I have to close, pipeline I have to generate, calls I have to make, emails I have to send, what I have to do. So I was able to really keep myself on task with that, knowing that my end goal was to be the best. Uh, now, part of that came with the money too. And for me, it's all about just growth in the next challenge. And it's like, okay, well, if I make 100K this year, I want to make 200K next year. So what do I have to do to get that? Yeah. But then when I started setting my own goals, I would say, okay, I want to 2X my quota this year. Mm -hmm. And I would do the same thing backwards for that. So I think anytime you look at like tactical goals and what you want to achieve, it's like, why do you want to achieve this? So like, that's the big thing coming back to this. Why did I want to be the best? Well, I wanted to be the best because part of it is my ego, right? Like I wanted to yeah. be number one. I'm competitive. Like I don't, I don't like to lose. Part of it was the money that comes with it. Like, you know, if you're the best seller at a company, you're making six figures. And if you're like an enterprise seller, that's doing million dollar deals. Like you could be making seven. So, you know, there's that money that comes with it. And for me, it was always the lifestyle too. It's like, mm. I, I always wanted to make my own rules. 
Like I didn't want to be one of those people who got out of college, worked really hard and ended up living back at home. And there's nothing wrong with that for people who have done that. I have good friends who have, but for me, I was now in a position in sales where I could control my own destiny in that regard. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it's all those like intrinsic factors for me that sat down and said, "I, I will do whatever it takes. So there has to be something else to drive you. And I think that's a big thing when people start setting goals and when people fall short of their goals or, you know, when you see somebody like a Tom Brady, like how is Tom Brady number one for so damn long? How's LeBron James so good for so long? It's they've Mm. got these goals inside of them that they want to, uh, that they want to hit, that they want to go capture. And it's not, at some point it stops about being number one. And at some point it stops being about the money. And it starts becoming, well, now it's I want to leave a legacy, or now it's I want to help other people develop like I've developed, or it's still wanting to have the freedom to, you know, make my own rules at the end of the day. So I think, you know, from a tactical standpoint, right, number one is understanding, like, what drives you? What do you really want? Because if you figure that out, and you want it bad enough, like you're going to find a way to do it, like you'll find the work. I think it's, I think you make such a great point about the self-awareness and like the specificity of it, right? Because if you just say, Hey, I want to be great, or I want to just, you know, get to 200% to goal, you know, whatever it might be. And you just say that without really a reason for it, you're probably just not going to do it. But if you want to earn, you know, a certain amount of money because, you know, you have, you know, debt or you want to buy a house or, you know, you want to do whatever, or you just want like to buy, you know, a nice pair of shoes or whatever your thing (laughs) is. Like, if you have that specific goal, and you're like, I think the point is awareness, though, it's like, it doesn't really matter, at least early on, I don't think what your driver is, if it's money, or you want to be recognized, or you want to be the best, people are driven by different things. But I, in my opinion, it's like, be aware of where you are right now, what's driving you and kind of like lean into that. If it's, if it is like, you know, a pair of shoes for, for example, like go put a pair of that picture of shoes, like on your wall or like on your, on your laptop. So you see it all the time and it motivates you. If it's that you want to be super competitive, then it's like, all right, well look at the leaderboard every day before you, you know, close up the laptop and maybe you send five more emails. So like kind of leaning into like whatever it is that is driving you at that point to keep you going. Yeah. And I think, so I think with that, 100%, like you have to lean into it. You have to be aware of what you want. Like, I'll take it a step further, though. Like the yeah. people who you really, really see going after, it's like, okay, you want a pair of shoes. The gym is my favorite example. Yeah. Like everyone says like, okay, I want to get in shape. So like, or like, I'm going to go to the gym because I want to get in shape. Well, of course, everyone wants to be in shape. But right. why do you want to be in shape? Mm. Is, it, is it a sex appeal thing? Is it a health thing? Is it a self-worth thing? Is it a self-esteem thing? Like, that's all great to say, I want to go to the gym and I want to be in shape. But how many people sign up for gym memberships and don't go? Like, how many people say they want to be in shape and then don't make it happen? Mm. You know, those other people, they've got the reason they want to do it. And then it becomes habitual. And I think that's the next thing about sort of getting these things, going after these goals, achieving these goals, is once you hit these goals and these plateaus that you have, the behavior to achieve them becomes habitual. Mm -hmm. And now you're just, and that's where you just go to a whole nother level. And that's when your goals start changing. At least they have for me. 
Yeah. Right. Throughout my career and throughout my life, like I don't have the same goals right now as I did when I was 22. Some of them I do. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I think that's the other thing that people get anchored to as well uh, when they set goals that I've seen. And it's certainly something that was kind of hard for me when I was like, I don't want this anymore. Well, what do I do? Yeah. And like, that's cool. Like, I think when you talk about and see people and how their goals have changed, how they've evolved, like that is something that that really should be rewarded. Yeah. Now, when you thought, I love the talk about like habits and try to make it habitual and like, you know, success is, is a habit, right? Um, what are things or even one thing that you picked up as a habit in your, you know, early on in your career that made a difference? And, and I'll buy you a little time. Like for me, um, I remember coming across, you know, different books and podcasts or whatever, you know, different videos and people talked about, you know, waking up a little earlier and I'm a morning person. Naturally, I get, you know, tired at night and I'm up early in the morning, but it, I kind of like trade myself to, to do that. And to get, you know, I was getting up at say seven and it's like, I'm going to start getting up at like six 30 and then like six and then like five 30. And for me that worked because um, if I wanted to get a workout in, or if I want to do, you know, when I started this podcast or whatever, I could do that in the morning and then get to work and kind of do my thing there. And it just kind of gave me that mental confidence of like, oh yeah, like, you know, I'm, I'm doing things, I'm getting after it. And it kind of like fed off that. And that was something that I, you know, really took advantage of and learned, you know, early on in my career that worked for me. I don't know if there's anything like that, that, that sparked for you too. So early habits, I mean, I'm a morning person too. I think that that's helped. The biggest one for me, I think, was trying to start owning my schedule. Mm. You know, when I was when I was early on and, and an individual contributor, it's like you don't have any other stressors coming at you, right? Like, you know what your schedule is. Like, yeah, there's other things that happen. But for the most part, it's like your main things are prospect, demo, close deal, update your CRM, make that happen, right? You know, as I started moving into, into leadership and started getting into that, like the time started getting really, really stretched. And I had a hard time at first saying no to anything. I had a hard time managing my time. And I found out that everything I was doing was not getting done as well as it should have. Like it was getting done, but it would either be like way later hours for me, or it wasn't, you know, as much as I wanted. So I think a big habit that I picked up that was really beneficial for me was the ability to say no to things respectfully and own my time. Mm. And it's really hard to say no to somebody. It's really hard to say no to your boss. Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard to say How no. How do you do it? I think you say that it's priorities, right? Like if your boss comes and says, hey, I want you to sit in and help, you know, train a new product person on something. Or if they come in and say, you know, hey, I've got... XYZ tasks that are outside of your direct responsibility. Like if you really have a busy week and you don't have time for it, then it's, you know, Hey, Tom, listen, I'd love to help put me on the list for the next time it happens. But right now I've got calls with all of these companies that are right at the finish line. It's a material impact for me. And I want to put all my focus into them. Like, right. So it's not saying like, no, I'm not going to do it because I'm being a dick and I don't want to yeah. do it. It's saying like, no, my job is to sell or, you know, even as you get into leadership, right? And that's where your time gets more stretched on. Like if you've got seller training you have to do, like if you've got an interdepartmental meeting, like there are certain things like, oh, sprint review. 
right? One of the things we do, sprint review, like sometimes it's like, no, I can't go to sprint review. Like I can't give any of my time to this dev stuff. I'll have to watch it afterwards because right now my week, it's you can't have that in there. Mm-hmm. So I will say this, you don't want to say no all the time. Like, especially if you want to get into leadership, like if you want to move into that as an individual contributor, or even as a leader, if you want to take that next step from manager to director, from director to VP, from VP up to the C-level, like you have to manage your time. And I think that's where like getting those habitual things in are really important. Um, So for me, that, uh, that ability to say no respectfully uh, and focus on owning my time has been huge. And it was, it was a difficult thing to learn and really uncomfortable at first. Yeah. So, you you know, you talked about getting into management and like, you know, some of the things that you have to do and your first job, you spent seven and a half years upwards of that at Paylease. And, um, you know, that's rare, you know, for a first job coming out of school. And I, my, I just left my first job at at a little over five years. And, uh, every recruiter that I talked to is like, Oh, like they were below, they were like five. Oh, that's years, not months. Like, wow. So, um, I, I'd be curious to, to hear your story about that. Like why, you know, first of all, why did you stay for so long? And second, how did you go about all the different promotions and keep climbing up the ladder and adding value and, and growing your career versus the typical mindset of like, all right, I'm going to stay here for a year. Then I'm going to go here for a year and go here for a year. And just kind of like, you know, jigsaw your way around your career. So the first thing is we had really, really good people at mm. Paley's when I was there. I mean, it was a fun place to work. We were kicking ass and everybody looked out for everybody else. I mean, it was a group of people that all wanted to win together and people were helping each other out. People would go that extra mile uh, for one another. And it was a really good place to start out. It was, it was a fun environment and we were successful. You know, you can have a fun environment where you're having fun with people, but you're not successful. You're not going to have a good time. And you can be really successful with horrible people. And we know how that turns out, right? Everyone talks about leaving bad managers and bad companies and things like that. But we had this, this just absolutely golden mixture of great people, success. It was a young industry, like the apartment and HOA industry for payments. It was still early on. It wasn't adopted yet. So we got in there and we had some really strong, uh, strong teams in place. So we were able to grow the business. And I became one of our best sellers over the course of a couple of years. And then we sold. So our company sold. Uh, We had a new equity group come in. And at the time that that happened, I was actually thinking of leaving Paley's right at that time. I was done with payments. Um, I kind of mastered this. I was ready to move on to my next thing. But when the new equity firm came in, they acquired another company. So we acquired this company called Osius, and they did utility billing and utility invoice processing for apartments. So now all of a sudden, what happened, like my role changed changed drastically. I was responsible for, you know, going and and really being a part of the go-to-market engine and go-to-market planning and really the proof of concept for two brand new things. So it basically was like starting over again. I had to learn a whole brand new product. I had to learn a new market, a new buyer, a new ICP. I had to learn a new uh, way to sell. I had to validate, you know, we had 12 million units on our platform at the time. Now we started this cross-sell team. Okay, well, how do we bundle these services together? Like, what's our package? What's our value prop? How do we sell this? What are their pain points? You know, so 
I got to go in and basically sit and say, hey, I'm an individual contributor, but I was an individual contributor who was sitting in on all these leadership meetings and helping to make and inform all these decisions. So that was kind of my first foray into sort of the player player leader, right? Where you're yeah. doing sort of both hands of things. And it also helped me understand at that point too, because you know there was a new implementation team to worry about. There were new things to service and support. So now my scope of interest was much wider. So my brain just clicked again. And it was like starting all over. Yeah, You had to learn all these things. So same industry, which was nice, but it was effectively a whole new company. Um, with a really, really strong foundation. So the worry about, you know, going under or being a startup that won't make it, like all that was gone because we had been established. So it gave me a lot of freedom to go out there, but also a huge, huge learning experience for me. Yeah, so I think it's it's all about like, you know, for you in that case, it was trying to make sure that you were still being challenged, right? And still finding new mountains to climb versus just staying stuck in the same thing. And And you got so much more value out of, you know, sticking with that climb because of, you know, a little bit fortuitous based on, you know, the acquisitions or the, you know, the, uh, with the private equity and things like that, that put you in position to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a big thing for me personally. Like I need to be challenged. I need to be growing. I need to be learning. Like these are things that matter to me. If I get bored, like we talked about that motivation earlier, like what keeps you going? Like if I get bored or get complacent, like I'm just down and then my mood starts to sink too. Like I actually like physically my mood's not good because I'm like, I'm bored. I got to go do this again. Like I'm not into it. So um, after that, we got bought out again. And that's when Vista came in and bought us and it was okay. We acquired a new property. Now I'm sitting on the senior leadership team at this company. Now I'm helping to grow and develop the teams, but I still, because we bought this new, this new company that was a smart home tech. Well, I still got to do that big strategy project of pulling it all together and pulling it in the mix. Uh, for me, though, at that point, too, like, even though I was doing that stuff, I was doing it in the same industry that I'd already done it in. It was really interesting for me. But, you know, that's kind of where I hit like the six and seven year mark where I was like, I'm ready now to get back to a smaller company mm-hmm. and do the build again. So I've, I've found, um, and this is another thing, too, like, with time comes that experience. And, and I was very fortunate in my career and I'll forever be thankful for everybody in my seven and a half years at every different stage um, of pay lease that is now Zigo uh, for what I was able to learn and the experiences that I had there. Because I know now for me, like I love the build. Yeah. I love the early stage. I love the process. Like I love the strategy behind these growing and building these companies at a young stage. Like that for me it, is fun. So, you know, we, uh, we got that here at childcare CRM. It's phenomenal. I've loved making the move and, you know, I've got, I've got a lot of people, a long list of people to thank, uh, for that, for my, for my seven and a half years. And that's what made me stay for so long. Yeah, totally. I mean, you have to have great people to, to stay somewhere that long. Um, I want to, I want to take a little bit of a shift. I want to get a little more tactical with you. Um, okay. So. I have a, a part of every podcast that I call the selfish section. Uh, it's one question specifically for me. It's not for anyone else. Um, I've heard you talk and I've seen you write about uh, giving demos and avoiding, you know, a feature dump and really trying to sell on value. Um, as someone that's getting ramped up in my role, starting to get my demo groove going, trying to up level that, I'd love to hear your tips for how can you, uh, you know, 
customize, personalize, add value, create just a kick-ass demo? Yeah. So, and I think every single part of the sales process starts in discovery and the demo is no different. So when you're building out a kick-ass demo, like, right, like for me, it's understanding what matters to the buyer, right? If you're going to go demo a product, I could spend four hours demoing our product to you. Yeah. Like you, it's just, you could go through every little nook and cranny and demo it, but people buy based on what matters to them, right? Like we know people buy, we are emotional. We're driven by self-interest. We're driven by business interests. So at its core, you know, you're in this discovery process. You're figuring out, okay, what are their pain points today and where do they want to go? Right. And, and I know anywhere you go, whether it's gap, spin, challenge, or sale, like whatever sales methodology you're in, it's all soaked in this idea of this value-based selling. So if you understand what matters to your buyer, now you know how to bridge the gap. Right. So it's like, I understand where their pain points are today. I understand where they want to go, but also I've paired this in with all the stakeholders. So I know what matters to each individual person. I know who's going to be on the call. So what I do is before my demo, I'll go in and pair and start crafting that story. So now you're on the demo, you're able to show the product and you start these demos off with a recap. Like I always like to do a high level recap and then put it back on the people. So, you know, if, uh, if we were talking, we'd lay through, Hey, you know, last time we talked in our discovery, you laid out boom, 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 or some of the things that you're struggling with right now and that you're looking for, what are you the most excited to see today? Mm. So I'll put it right back on that group. So now I know what they're the most excited to see. So it either allows me to make a quick switch on the fly or yeah. I'm a, or, you know, and it's that affirmation thing too, right? So I'm already getting them excited. I'm already getting them involved in it. I'm asking questions. So it's not just me talking to them. And from there, it's about showing them how they can do their job better. How will our product have a material impact on your day-to-day and your one, three, five-year goals, just depending on what type of sale you're doing. So, you know, in that regard too, it's not, you're not sitting there and asking, well, oh, does this make sense to you? Or do, do you get it? Right. So it's going in. Pairing. I hate those questions. They're the worst questions because everyone says yes. And if, even if they don't get it, you lose them either way. But it's okay. Now I understand. Right. Here's your pain point. Here's how our product, and I'm going to show you how our product uses it. I'm going to layer in maybe a little user story, or if we've got some trends and analysis, I'll filter in those little proof points with the demo. So I'm validating what we've already done with this by other people. So now in my buyer's mind, it's saying, oh, I'm not alone. Oh, I've got somebody who's done this too. And then I'll sort of put the, put it back on them again. Right. And it's like, okay. So I kind of showed you the best case used. How would you use this? Mm-hmm. Or could you imagine what this would do for your business in day to day? So I'll ask those questions that put it back on them. And now I'm getting them to think like I want them to buy in. So with my demos, it all starts with that really heavy discovery. You have to know what matters. You have to know where they want to go. It's taking that platform, right? Take your demo to each one of those areas and then crafting a story around it though. So it's not just like, oh, here's one feature, boom, one feature plug in. Oh, here's pain point number two. Here's feature for pain point number two. Here's number three. It's no, how can you craft this story around what our product or what our platform will do? And if you can do that and do that in a compelling way, getting involvement all the while from the teams, you know, that's something that, 
when you lead that demo, and I hear it all the time, people are like, oh, I had a great demo. And I'm like, why? They're like, oh, well, they really liked it. We went through it pretty quickly. I'm like, no, when I hear I want a great demo, it's like, no, they started asking me more questions and dug in more. They started saying, oh, I could see myself using it this way, or, oh my God, that would help my job so much that way, or this is going to save us so much time. I, I hear someone say that on a demo amount. I'm like, okay, let's dive into this more. And then it, it does go back to this. You know, we talk about it all the time. It's like the, the scripting versus the robotic. And yes, you have to have your bullet points and your story out there, but you need to feed off the people you're deviling. Like if they want more in a certain area, do it and then stick to your time. Like if you run out of time on your demo, cut it, set a second one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can't get into that point where it's, you know, three minutes to the top of the hour and you're like, oh, I want to show this last thing. You got to cut it at some point, right? Because you got to be able to talk about the next steps. You can't get to that point where you're at the top of the hour. You're like, hey, I've got a hard stop. Send me the info. We'll set up more time. They ghost you for three months and then you never hear from them. Yeah, no, and you can't do that. And so you know, I think if you, and that's part of like crafting the story and crafting the narrative too, right? Like you start telling this story about your product when you're giving a demo, you start tying it all back in. And that's the thing. It's all about that tie-in. So it's that value tie-in at the end. Like you're crafting this story. A lot of times people get really involved in the story, uh, which is, which is great. And that's, I mean, for me, that's just a fun part of selling. Yeah. You know, I love yeah. being able to have those conversations with people and, and I love, you know, being able to coach the team on having those conversations with people and sort of seeing that come and manifest it. And that's when you get really happy customers too. Like the downstream effect to that is like, sure, you know, you, you're going to sell deals and that's going to happen. But when it goes to your implementation team, when it goes to your customer success team, like now you've got a really happy customer from start to finish. Mm -hmm. And there are huge implications for that. You know, whether it's referrals, whether it's word of mouth, whether it's building your brand, reducing churn, all of the above, you know, selling it for a higher dollar amount than you would have to otherwise. I mean, it's, you know, I think understanding those buyers, tying it all back together and doing so and, and you know, really crafting that narrative is really powerful. When you guys sell, do you, when you close it, you pass it to implementation, just the AE, the salesperson, that's kind of like their last step? Or do they, yeah, so or do the way they stay and try to renew and all that stuff? No. So the way that we've structured our company is uh, we've got the sales team who goes and sells. So yep. hunting, farming, so net new business, expansion and cross sell. Then once a deal closes, like we've got our exit criteria for a sale and the setup documents we need. At that point, we do a handoff to professional services. They do all of our setup, implementation and training. And then at that point, we also have a customer success team. So this is our proactive account reps that then come in and help do our business reviews, make sure that everyone's using it correctly, uh, updating on any new features and product releases. And then we've also got our reactive support team as well. Mm -hmm. And as a, as a, as someone that is it part of the pre-sales process, right? When, when and where can you get referrals, right? Because, um, oftentimes I think maybe the assumption or the easy way to do that is like, if I'm working post-sale, and they're seeing success, or they just renewed, or they just had this major breakthrough. It's like, oh, great. This is a great time to ask, you know, who else could see value in this? When can I do that as a, as an AE, as someone that's selling the original deal? Or is it, or is it poor form? So I think it depends on the rapport you have with the person yeah. who's buying the service and what size it is. Hmm. So 
big enterprise sales, if they're using you, like there's so much work that needs to go into that. Like I'm probably not asking for a referral on a big enterprise sale. Mid-market, I would say like if you see somebody who's like really jazzed up, if you have a great sales process with them, then yeah, I mean, you can ask at the end of a sale. Um, I think SMB, you can always ask if you have good rapport. Like if someone kind of limps across the finish line to close a deal, like they're probably not going to be a referral. But you know, when you have someone who's really excited about something, when someone who's really just cannot wait to get going, I think that's the time where you say, hey, this person's giving me all of those right signals. They're excited. They can't wait to start. They've been really diligent and quick in getting me all the setup documents back. Like I didn't have to drag this process out. They were reaching out to me. So when you get these people who are really engaged at that point, I would say like, hey, these are good people to ask from a selling motion uh, for a referral. Like with our professional services team as well, they there's like surveys that we'll do for satisfaction surveys. So I think if someone comes back from that implementation survey and they're really happy with everything, that's a good person to ask for a referral as well at that point in implementation uh, and then success too. So I think yep. you can kind of key it in on a couple of different points. Referrals are hard. You know, some, some industries are more receptive than others, I'm sure. But when somebody uses a, a product or service that they think is going to have a material impact on their business, they sometimes see it as a competitive advantage. Mm. And so that's why when you get in these upper mid-market and enterprise level deals, not that you're necessarily unique to them, like they know that you're, that they don't own you. Like it's not proprietary, but they, they might not be right off the bat, right from a selling motion saying, Hey, go talk to this person. Uh, because, you know, a lot of times there's proof of concept, there's rollout. That's been my experience. So I think, you know, anybody who listens to this, who's got an idea about referrals, like no. this is not word and gospel, right? This has just been my experience with it. I think referrals are, are one of the trickiest and one of the most beneficial things that you can get really dialed in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I want to talk about childcare CRM for a few minutes before we, uh, before we kick the bucket here. Um, you came in at, you know, we talked about you moving to Dallas, uh, taking on the new role right before COVID and, you know, running the sales team, running a new team uh, in the COVID era has got to be really challenging. I'm curious for someone like yourself that, you know, you could, anyone listening here, they can, they can sense your passion. They can sense your energy. Um, if I've never met you in person, but I bet if we met in person, it would be like that on, you know, 10 times the level. So how did you help build that culture? How did you drive the enthusiasm when, you know, maybe you're getting back into the office now down in Texas. I'm not sure what the, what the rules are or whatever, but in the days where you weren't and it was a zoom world and a Slack world, like how were you helping to build that culture? What was kind of like the main things that you did? It's hard. Um, it's hard and it's new. Building a culture over over Zoom is difficult. So I, I'm fortunate that I got to get in the office a little bit before everything shut down. So I didn't start fully remote. We've had sellers and we've had team members across the entire organization who have started fully remote. Um, so number one, I'm a big fan of over communication. Right. So I think over communicating with the team, letting them know what's happened, being very transparent with the business, with the industry, with the CDC, with what we're seeing, with what we're feeling is good. Um, but look, even when you go through hard times, good things are happening, right? So like it's, I cannot focus and live in a doom and gloom world. And I don't want my team to think that that's what the world is either. And that's not to say it's false. That's not to say we're manifesting things that don't exist and that we're lying, right? Like you have to be true. You have to be transparent. But part of that is shining light on the positive things that are happening, right? Mm -hmm. So 
if you know you're making a lot of calls and you're figuring something out and it's just not converting because businesses are closed it's like well okay here's the thing but you're getting better at the talk track you're understanding the business better you're putting in work that will pay off later right you're having conversations that are helping you understand the environment that are making you better speakers to other people so it's not for nothing you're going out and doing something productive anytime a deal closes like that's a big thing right so it's we're celebrating those more but i think it's understanding as a team and having that place where everyone can sit down and say myself included like man i'm having a tough time and it's tough but there's no way around it so what can we do as a group together and what can we do as individuals to give ourselves the best chance to succeed and i think culture and i think leadership and i think attitude starts from the top so yes, everybody plays a part in it. But for me as the leader, it was showing up every day with a smile. It was saying, hey, I'm going to own our number. Like, yes, we have quota numbers. Yes, they exist out here. But when things were really you know, uncertain and stuff, when we were looking at our, our 2020 original business plan and then looking at how to forecast that and what that meant, it was sitting down and saying, hey, sellers, we're going to go through this. Like, don't worry about it, right? Like, We will get your back. And it's then putting in that work every day to show the team what me and the company were willing to do for them and how we were going to support them through this. So I think when you build that culture of support, when you celebrate the wins, no matter what they are, whether it's someone just getting a no, right? Hey, I got to know. Here's what I heard. Great. Thanks for that information, right? All these little things um, to try to help make sure that we're bonding through hardship, but also giving people the room to be concerned. You know, yeah. we had a crazy year, right? COVID, people were uncertain. People had families. People were pregnant. People were getting sick. Their families were worried. You know, I think having the ability to say, go shut down, Go, don't stop worrying about this for a moment. Go shut down. You know, when the George Floyd and all those riots were happening, everything like that, super sensitive to some of the people on my team, go take the week off and shut down, you know, because you're not doing any good here worrying at work. So it's a yeah. give and take. Um, I am a demanding person. I know that I am. I'm demanding of myself. I'm demanding of the people around me. So I, I will give a lot. I will ask a lot. But I think also at those times when, when people need it, being able to step off the gas. Uh, so, so I think that in my department was helpful. We've got great leadership at Child Care CRM who believes in transparency and believes in showing a path too. So it was saying, hey, here's where we're at. Here's how we get back to where we need to go. Yep. So here's our path there. Like we're not staring in a black hole. We gave people a milestone. We gave them insight. Um, and we gave them the freedom to talk and ask questions. And, you know, everyone talks about being vulnerable. Um, and I put that in quotes because not everyone's going to be open and going to talk, but it's about giving people the space to, to manage a very uncertain time on their own and showing them what we'll do to help support them in that. Yeah. I love that, man. And, um, man, that the, uh, the time flew by on this conversation. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I had a great time and I'd love to just kind of wrap up, let people know, where they can find more about you, uh, where they can find more out about childcare CRM if they're interested. Uh, wh where's the best place to find you? Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to find me, if you have any questions, I'm on LinkedIn, Mike Hook, uh, right there. If you want more on childcare CRM, 
let me know. Happy to tell you. Or, uh, we're yeah. at childcarecrm.com. So, uh, no, the time did fly by. It was uh, it was awesome chat with you, Tom, and uh, appreciate you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everyone go go hit him up on LinkedIn. And uh, just as a, as a personal plug, um, you know, it's been great to get to know you this year, someone I didn't know, you know, a year ago, and you were helpful with some of the stuff I was going through this year, helpful with my sister who transitioned into <laughs> sales. Um, so if people have questions about sales or, you know, transition to sales or leadership, Mike's a great resource. So not to put more on your plate, but, um, <laughs> it's, uh, but you're, you're, you're really helpful. So hit him up and, uh, and flood his inbox. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I like it. Can't wait. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for checking out that podcast. I hope you saw value, uh, whether you're, you know, working out right now or doing the dishes or, um, you know, laying around the couch, whatever you're doing right now while you're listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found some value. If you did, the only thing that you can do to really help me out is to share this podcast with a friend, share it on social media, and please subscribe wherever you're listening, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever it is, and leave a review on Apple if that's where you're listening. That, that's what helps us to spread reach, helps us to get better guests uh, like the one that you heard just now, um, and to give you as much value as possible. So connect with me. Uh, LinkedIn, Kamalemo, uh, yeah, Instagram, Twitter, Tommy Tahoe, and subscribe, leave a review, and make it a great day. Peace. Thank you so much.